Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. Today, I'm joined by Rich Walker, the CEO and founder of Quick, and we are so excited to have him here today. Rich, thanks so much for being with us today on the Connected Podcast. My pleasure, Kyle. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to open up with something that we discovered. And when doing some research for this, I just couldn't find an answer. So I think it's on the website. It says that your wife is going to have on your tombstone the phrase, go troopers. And I'm a pretty good Googler. I could not for the life of me figure out what that, you know, where that came from. So I wanted to start us off with a cold open of why go troopers? What does that mean? Give us the, the story behind that. Oh, wait. So do you want to hear what's going to be on my wife's tombstone? <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Let's go. Let's go. Give us the whole thing. <laughs> so really, it comes back to our personalities and, and what our general tendencies are in life. So my wife, she actually has a cartoon brain. And if you meet her, you might see her being serious or friendly or whatever. But she actually has a cartoon brain. So her tombstone's going to say, because it was funny. Everything she does has that answer why she did it. Mine, on the other hand... Look, I love to motivate and inspire. I've written a couple of books. I love public speaking. I love working with college students. So anytime that I'm meeting with one-on-one with somebody, I'm always motivating. I always love to do that. And so in her mind, she's always saying, oh, Rich is going like, go troopers, let's charge. <laughs> <laughs> I just believe everybody can do what they set out to do. And they, I, I want people to believe in themselves more and uh, do their best. So yeah, I'm always the cheerleader, I guess. Well, so where does that come from? The desire to want to motivate people, the desire to want people to be their best. Talk a little bit about why that matters to you. You know, I would have to go all the way back to my childhood, which I had a rough and tumble childhood. When I was four and a half years old, my parents divorced. My father became a drug addict, alcoholic. We moved every year of my life. I've moved 33 times in my life, most of which was before age 30. I've been to every different school experience you can imagine. I was the new kid in the front of the class, the back of the cast, bullied, liked, et cetera. You know, one of the things I did is I mirrored people and I learned innately how to mirror people and reflect back to them themselves. And I did that because I learned people like themselves more than they like other people. So if you're like them, they'll like you more. Essentially, it was survival skill I figured out. And as I grew up and realized that, what I was actually learning to do is reflect back to people who they could become and I've always wanted people to help me do my best and empower me to be my best version of myself. So I want the same for others. I would say that if you went and talked to therapists and understood why they become therapists, most of them are trying to solve the same problem for others that they're solving for themselves. So honestly, that's what it is. In my work life, I worked for Arthur Anderson back in the 90s, and I never felt like I could do my best work. I wasn't challenged enough. I wasn't growing fast enough. That's one of the reasons I'm an entrepreneur is I want to be able to do my best work and empower others to do their best work. So yeah, I, I think a lot of it is I see the potential in people. I think this is one of my gifts, see their future for them. 
And I really, really want to see them connect with that and make it happen. So I, I think that's a big part of it. I, I believe in people. Yeah. Oh, man, I love that. That's a that's a great message to hear today, especially, you know, it feels like the whole news cycle, everything is so negative and there's a lot of, you know, a lot out there about all the negativity. So it's great to to hear a message of just somebody who who wants to see positivity, believes that there there is the best in people and trying to pull it out of people. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah, you know, I, people talk about law of attraction and you know, things like that. And I think you get what you give. So one of my little internal sayings is, I will be the first to smile at a stranger because the opposite, scowling at them, gets the worst reaction. I'd rather smile at them first, even if they don't respond. So yeah, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm positive. I, I think about how the world could be, and I try to live it that way. Oh, I love that. All right. So one of the things we love to talk about, and you're, you're already alluding to it, so it's a great segue into this. This show is called Connected. It's about how do we better connect with people. And so advisors, you know, who is the primary audience of this show, at the end of the day, their goal is to better connect with their clients because that's the true differentiator is the advisor themselves and how they can connect with the people that are sharing their hopes and their dreams and their you know, anxieties and their worries and their fears all disguised under we're going to invest your money, but really, you know, why are we investing that money? And, and so it's all about how advisors can create better connections. So my question for you is, what do you think it takes to create great connections with people? That's a really good question. And thankfully, I was an advisor for a little while, so I understand that, that challenge a bit. And man, it was hard for me to connect at age 26. I think ultimately, you have to go down to what matters to you. And the deeper relationships bond on what matters to both people. So number one, if you can understand yourself better and you know who you are, you know your values, you know your beliefs, and you live to that extent, then it's easier for you to feel comfortable and confident and then attract people who want the same thing. And I think those deep connections come from having that similarity and that common thread with each other. The second thing I also look at, and I, I look at this in all relationships, especially like the one with my wife, is communication. And communication has varying forms as well as styles. So one of my other core beliefs is that I'm always going to be a student of communication because it's a skill that we're constantly using throughout our life and we can always build upon. So how you communicate with clients is equally important. What you say and don't say and how you say it and when you say it all those things. So I'm a huge student of when to communicate, how to communicate, where to communicate, et cetera. And I also think that when I was looking at building up my clientele as an advisor, I was looking for people that I could actually communicate with in the same manner or in the same thread. Don't ask me about sports, for example. I know nothing about sports. I'm not going to build a clientele that's all sports because I would just never follow, the, follow along with what's going on. Yeah, that's really good. And communication is always evolving, right? I don't think we as a collective of people communicate the same way in 2023 that people communicated in, say, 1983 or 1953 or, you know, 1923, for example. So I think there's a being a student of communication is absolutely a foundation of connection because people are changing how they do that year over year. Yeah. So I'll say something else. And this is just another one of these beliefs. I'm full of beliefs, by the way, because I wrote a book about beliefs. And that is the foundation of all relationships is your communication. And if you think about it, not communicating is actually a form of communication. If I ignore you, if I don't return your call, if I don't answer you promptly, that is teaching you something. And so there's another way I look at this. I'm always teaching people how to communicate with me. 
So if I'm not prompt, I'm always late, I'm teaching you that I'm gonna be late and I disrespect your time versus the opposite. And those are the things I constantly think about with my communication. So there's a style, there's a method, and there's also what we're not doing that's teaching everybody what we want to have happen to us or not have happen to us in a result. I love that. Let's explore that a little bit. So for the advisors listening, I think everybody hears the surface level of that. Hey, you got to be a great communicator. What are a couple of takeaways that somebody listening to this can go and try to become a better communicator today, go in a layer deeper than, yeah, I know I need to be a better communicator. I should be better at this. But how can they better communicate with their clients and their staff? One of the things that I was very fortunate to read very early on around age 17 was the seven habits of highly successful people. And one of those skills is seek to understand before being understood. People say, God gave you two ears and one mouth. You should be listening twice as often as you're talking. And because of my growing up and trying to always fit in in a new school, I was listening way more than talking. In fact, I didn't even learn how to talk more than just 10 words at a time until my late 20s. I was always super concise and to the point about things. I never knew how to joke, etc. So number one, you got to listen. Somebody said this to me yesterday, that there's three stages of listening. There's listening for my turn to say what's next. There's listening to understand what you said. And then there's connected listening, active listening, where I'm truly digesting what's important to you. So I would say foundation number one is you've got to listen a lot more. And listening is not just with the ears, it's observing. So I see your body language. I see how your face changes if I bring up risk, for example, if we're talking about finance or family or whatever. And I, and I think you know, body language is part of that listening skill that we have to pick up and learn from too. Well, for the advisors listening, I think there's some gold nuggets there for you, especially the idea of those three layers of listening. I would encourage you to go and, and ask yourself, how often are you truly going beyond layer one of listening? Are you there just to deliver you know, how great your expertise is? Or are you there to truly understand and seek your clients to connect with them better? So appreciate you sharing that, Rich. Would love to hear a little bit more about your experience as an advisor for a while. So I actually didn't know that about you, even though I learned some different deep research, go troopers and things like that. I didn't know you were an advisor. So tell us a little bit about that experience and, and what that was like. Sure. So I left a career, a very successful career in technology and consulting and joined my mentor in his business. Now he was a retiree from IBM and he had done so well managing his own money. He thought, you know, I'm going to help others with that. He became a CFP. And when I came to him, I said, hey, I'm between jobs. I'm thinking about joining these different companies. He's like, join me. I said, I want you to be able to join my business. Let's build it up for another five years. And then I'll transition it over to you. It's a perfect way for me to retire again and know my clients are well taken care of. So I was 26 at the time. I had a baby face. I grew a beard just to try to look older than 19 years old, I think. And I went and got out my licenses and all those things. But I really struggled with trying to understand his clientele because his clientele were all high net worth, older, retired, or at retirement. They all had kids. They went through college. I'm 26. I had none of those things. So I really had a hard time figuring out how to communicate with them and understand their challenges. So I started to shift and I realized I came from a professional background at Arthur Anderson. So why don't I work with other young professionals? I had built a presentation for how to manage your retirement in 15 minutes because I identified that my audience had two things in common. Number one, they had no time. Like they're super busy with their careers, starting families, et cetera. And number two, now forgive me, this is gonna sound bad. They all thought they knew what they were doing. 
So if you came and asked them about their money, like, oh, I got this all figured out. I'm super smart. I'm super successful. And that's actually not true. One of the things I learned was you should hire people smarter than yourself. And what that really means is bring people in with skills that you don't have. Would you drill your own teeth or would you go to a dentist? I mean, it's pretty obvious. So why wouldn't you hire a great financial advisor to help you with your needs? But again, you have to have that correlation of what are the needs that you're doing? How are you communicating, et cetera? So I started to attract a much younger clientele that were in their late 20s, early 30s, maybe low 40s to build up that style of business for me. You know, you hear about a lot of the, the challenges that come with growing a business like this. So you have seemingly very smart people. You came from a consulting background, worked with some of the most successful companies in the world. You saw how to do it. Your mentor, obviously, successful career at IBM. You guys are great business minds. I'm sure you could come and apply a lot of great business techniques to growing an advisory firm. Where did the challenges come into play, you know, that really got in the way or made it hard for, for that business to be something that you're still doing today? I found quick. <laughs> yeah. The, the real story is there's two things. Number one, I started building tech for my partner and I because I was helping him with his business first before I even had my own clientele. For six months, I just helped service his accounts, etc. And I started building tech to automate our world. I mean, I built an automatic charting system in 2001 that pulled data from Yahoo charts or stocks, etc. I built Morningstar integration, and I also built a Monte Carlo simulator for our financial planning software that we built. So I was into all this tech saying, let's automate, let's automate, let's automate. And then I win my first client. And then I have to fill out paperwork by hand. I'm like, this is dumb. I will never do this again. I filled out two sets of IRA rollovers. You know, I was going to make $40 commission, I think. And I was like, I'm going to make $4 an hour filling out forms for a living. This is stupid. I'm never doing this again. So I built little piece of software. Honestly, it was a hack. It was an Excel spreadsheet with an image of a form with fields coming into it. And it worked. And people kept seeing my turned in paper saying, Rich, how'd you do this? Oh my gosh, I don't want to fill out forms. Give me your software. And I kept saying, no, I'm not building software for anybody. I'm a financial advisor. This is my business now. But after six months of hearing that, I said, okay, I guess I've got something here. So that's number one. People wanted something and I, I, it was kind of, I fell into this. But number two was a realization I had as a financial advisor. Believe it or not, Kyle, I felt guilty to be a financial advisor. It was a strange psychology problem that I had. I came from no money. I mean, literally we were on welfare, super poor. I came from no money and suddenly I was having money and then I'm starting this business. And now I'm in the shoes of saying to people, hey, if you want to meet your retirement goals, Let's say you need to save 15,000 a year for the next you know, 35 years. Sorry, make that 16,000 because you got to pay me a grand. And so suddenly I felt like I'm taking their retirement money from them. And it was just this, it's, it's my own thing. And when it came to software, on the other hand, I'll charge people for my software. I have no qualms about that. I built great product. You'll pay for it. No problem. So I, I realized in making that decision, do I want to be a planner? Do I want to be in software? The, the two things that came out was one, how to charge for my services and how I felt about it. And number two, how could I help more people? And I realized if I build great software that helps a thousand advisors help 200 clients each, that's way bigger than me working with a hundred clients. That's amazing. I, I love that. I love the, the self-awareness of that. And I love that you shared that story because I'm sure there's a lot of people who could probably resonate with that in a lot of ways. So let's dig a little bit deeper into quick coming to pass. So when was this that you were filling out paperwork by yourself for the first time? 
So this was around June of 2001. It took me about six months to get fully licensed and earn the trust of my first client. And then it took me another three months to get my partner to try the software I built. And it was so funny because he's like, I know I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. And then I gave him the software, got him to work on it. He did it. And he said, why haven't I used this for three months? I said, I don't know. I've been trying to get you to use it. And one of the things it did for us is it changed how we went to our client meetings. Sometimes you'd go to a meeting not knowing if the client wants to do a Roth, traditional, SEP, simple. You don't know what kind of IRA they're going to do. So you bring all the blank forms with you. This is the bad thing that we would do back then is have them sign it and then go back to the office and fill it out. Totally wrong, obviously, but a lot of advisors would do that. Well, when we had our first incarnation of Quick, we would just pre-fill all those documents, have them all pre-printed and just choose the one out of our binders and say, oh, this is the one you want to do. And now we were in compliance. It was fast and easy. All their data was there. We could just finish marking it up and go. So that really showed us that this was something that was going to help a lot of people. Our very, very first client got our install on February 11, 2002. And I love to say a shout out to Bonnie Woos and and Associates because she's very, very successful. And she had a full-time staff person who 40 hours a week would handwrite forms. So we installed our software and I got a call back two weeks later from Jody. And Jody said, oh my gosh, you are completely changing my life. And I could feel like this this tension and emotion in there. And I was uncertain of like, oh my gosh, is she saying she's not going to have a job anymore? Or what is she saying? And what she said was, she's like, now I only fill out forms for about four hours a week. And half of that's just putting good data into my CRM. The other half's printing forms. It's so easy now. The thing I love about her story, though, is that she went on over time to become a certified financial planner, I believe, and then VP of marketing for a broker-dealer. I mean, her career totally flourished. And that really was the the crux of the whole thing that we were doing. We're empowering people to do their best work. And I have yet to meet the person whose best work is paperwork. So it's been 20 years since, since you discovered this and started it. And I know there's been evolution in the industry and all of that, but there's still a lot of people who require wet signature on certain things and everything like that. I'm sure this has got to frustrate you more than, more than the average person. So what do you think is preventing the industry from going fully digital on some of this stuff, from helping automate? Because there's still a lot of paperwork that needs to be filled out. And even the stuff that needs to be digital, I know, can be a massive headache for people and a a lot of these firms. So I'd love to give you an opportunity to just talk about that a little bit and why it's still such a challenge. So frankly, Kyle, I think we started the impossible company and we only had one competitor when we started and really the same today. And that is we have to bring together all the different documents people use. So start naming companies, mutual funds, insurance, annuity, et cetera. What that's saying is, it's a very fragmented market. Some advisors do business only with American funds. Some do American funds in Putnam and Templeton. Some do only life insurance with PacLife. I mean, just go down the list. Some will choose the best product every single time from a different company. Well, all those companies have different processes and different documents. And who's going to consolidate all that and put it into one system in which to automate? Or another way to look at it, I had a client tell me this yesterday. They said, the problem we have is if we can't put all the documents into one envelope for signature, I would rather print them all because it's too confusing to the customer to get three envelope requests, you know, DocuSign or SignX, three separate requests via email and then have to do it separately. I'd rather print them all and have them one packet in hand to make that experience easier for them. So at the end of the day, I still think it comes back to the customer experience. 
how is your end investor working with you as an advisor to fill out the forms? Was it entirely automated? Was it partially automated? Was it stopped in the middle because data was missing and you had to go collect it and it came back and then the forms changed? I mean, are you still printing because that's the nature of your world? Maybe your clientele still wants to handwrite and sign because that those people totally exist. No problem with that. Honestly, in my own judgment, I only think about 20% of transactions are actually automated. I still think 80% are being printed. I don't know the facts, but that's just my gut sense of how things are working these days. There's a whole plethora of reasons for why we can't get to 100% digital. If you look at companies that are captive advisors, which means they own the tech, they own the device they're using, they own the process. Yeah, you can automate that. Totally automate that. But the independent broker dealers and the RIAs out there and all these different types of companies, you know, like TAMPS, they have a challenge because they sell to all these different distribution channels, so they can't get fully automated. They're all trying and they're all making progress. But this is a very, very complex problem, it turns out. I'd love to actually go a little bit deeper on this because I think most people look at this and go, it's just it's just paper digitally, you know, and you fill it out and then you just sign it and, and go. But I think what you're getting at too, though, is most of the ways people approach problems in this industry are through the lens of a single advisor under a single practice with however many households. And, you know, it's sort of the, the, the simplest, most straightforward way of doing this because that's the, you know, the persona people have of a financial advisor. But the reality in most of the industry is people affiliated with a broker dealer, people affiliated with a larger RAA that have several. Oh, now you're working with a TAMP. Oh, now you're multi-custodial. You know, so you have all of these spokes that connect to, yes, there's a person who's serving those end investor clients. So just share a little bit more for people out there so that they can appreciate the challenge. And most of the time, people don't just work with one TAMP, for example. What is it about when you start to fracture the distribution that makes that more difficult. I think a lot of people would still feel like, well, can't you just, you just pick the fund manager and you just pick who it is and they set the rules and it just works, right? So why doesn't that, why doesn't that work, Rich? Yeah, so this is the core of the problem. And actually my tech background is data. I developed data warehousing and reporting systems and ERP systems back in the 90s. So when I came to look at this problem, what I realized is, Everybody needs their data. My broker dealer, Financial Network, needed their data. Pershing needed their data. American Funds needed their data. So they all have their different documents in which to collect that data. What is a form? It's a data collection device that's very trivial. It's a piece of paper, very inexpensive to produce. That's the crux of the problem. So the second thing is, how do you get everybody to agree on a standard for data? Thankfully, you can take your ATM card and go to Wells Fargo or Chase or Bank of America or foreign locations and it all works because they all agreed on the standard. So what I did is I said, forms are purely display mechanisms for that data. What matters is the data. And the very first thing I did to build quick is define the common fields across those documents. So first name is always first name. I don't care if it's a US government form, healthcare form, financial services form, life, annuity, doesn't matter. Your name never changes. So why can't you just enter it on all the documents the same way? Second was context. It's not just your name. What role do you play on the document? Are you the account owner? Are you the beneficiary? Are you the custodian? Are you the dependent, financial advisor, et cetera? So we built a definition of fields, and this is really what makes Quick unique in the world. Our definition is well over 750,000 unique fields that are common across all the documents, all 38,000 plus forms in our library. But that enables us to build a single data point that works on all the forms the same way. 
So that's how you bring it together is you give everybody the same pipe. I'll give you one other analogy. The companies that produce gas, they'll drop their gas from their tankers into the pipeline all at the same point of entry. So Texaco, Chevron, Exxon, it's all being mixed together. It's all the same gas. They agreed on a standard, goes into the pipelines, distributes around America. And then at the pump, they're adding in the additives and the differences to make it slightly different or better, upgrading it to higher octane, et cetera. But honestly, it's because they all agreed on a standard. Could you imagine if you had to go to the Honda gas station, the Toyota gas station, the Volvo gas station? That's what forms are like. I haven't been in the industry quite as long as you, but I've, I've been around long enough to know there have been initiatives to try and standardize to do things like that. What do you think has prevented our industry from getting to a standardized way of handling data or thinking about data as it relates to this? Because it would make compliance easier. It would make a lot of these things easier, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's a tough one. You can look at consortiums that have produced standards, like maybe the Accord standard. And it takes a lot of willpower, a lot of money and commitment from the leaders in the industry to get together. I don't know if you've seen this, but look how long it takes to come up with a standard. I mean, we're talking five years, 10 years sometimes to all get together and agree. There's another challenge with that, which is you end up creating a standard on the lowest common denominator. And the consortium, they're not all going to agree on everything. I think that's one of the main things. So when I looked at this problem of who's going to automate my forms, I went to my broker dealer and they said they'd do theirs. I said, well, what about Pershing? So they're like, nah, we don't do Pershing forms. They're not our forms. Go talk to Pershing. And I said to Pershing, would you automate your forms? They said, maybe, but what about my broker dealer? <laughs> I mean, it just becomes everybody's got their kind of thing. And, and part of that's reinforced by FINRA and SEC, you know, all the compliance rules to keep your data private. I was talking about this last week. I was at the Beacon Strategies Conference and we were talking about one of the big things of data and all these different companies have their data, right? Well, their data is their data and it's based on how they collected data and it may be very pertinent to the type of client they serve. So let's say you're a financial advisor and you only serve people that have a million dollars plus net worth. What does that look like versus ultra high net worth versus somebody who's doing seminars and enrolling anybody with 10,000 bucks? The data is different. I just think that there's this idea that we have to keep everything kind of contained and not share it. But what would make your data better is the ability to share. So I offer that the quick field definition can be that industry standard. And we've seen it where one of our partners, technology partners, is generating forms on behalf of one of our other clients. And instead of sending them forms, I send them the data because it's the same standard of data between our two systems. Yeah, that's really interesting. And then how does that play? You mentioned CRMs earlier, right? Because now, now I go back to the advisor and they go, well, all of that stuff, Rich, that you're asking for, first name never changes, all of that stuff never changes, right? If I have it in the CRM, shouldn't it just, shouldn't it just work? Yeah, I mean, it should. And that's what our product's set up to do is effectively allow you to map information from your data source to our data source, meaning our forms, do it once and it'll always work. So that's actually the, the best part about it. Kyle, I'll tell you something else. And I, I really don't mean to bore your audience on this concept of forms, but here's what ha actually happens when companies say, let's automate forms. They give the form to a developer and then they say to the developer, make these fields work. The common mindset of a software developer, and I've been a software developer for a long time too, the common mindset is, oh, I'll make first name, get the data from this database. I'll just make that field work. Then go to the next field and I'll make that field work. I'll go to the next one, and make that field work. Okay, that project took three months. Now they get another form or a new developer 
and they take a different mindset. They're like, they're going to make that field work as well, but they're going to name it differently. They're going to operate with the data differently. They didn't sit down and define it the way I did, which to me is just weird, but it's just how I think. Because I say, well, what's a form? It's just a display mechanism. It doesn't matter. Let's just make the data flow. So anyway, I don't want to go too detailed because we'll bore yeah. the financial advisors out there. <laughs> no, no, no. And I, and I appreciate you sharing this, though, because at MileMarker, we're trying to help firms centralize their data. You talked about building data warehouses in, in the 90s. You know, a lot of what MileMarker offers to people is access to cloud data warehouse because we're trying to help standardize their data at the firm level across their multiple systems so that they can do consolidated reporting and intelligence and insights. So I do think it's interesting for people to understand why it's so hard for data to just work. And the challenge is the problem you just talked about is compounded across all of their systems. So in, in the CRM, the developers of the CRM say this is how first name should go, but the developers of the financial planning system say it's different. And so maybe like, I always love to use an analogy of like JJ Reddick, the basketball player, but in the CRM, it might be JJ Reddick, no spaces, no periods. And then in the portfolio management system, it might be J period, J period Reddick. And then in the financial planning system, it might be James Jones Reddick. And all of a sudden, when you're trying to do reporting across your firm, well, that's showing up as three different things, even though that's one person. It's incredibly challenging because you don't have that standard that you're talking about that everybody should be working towards. I don't think it's boring for people. I think it is important that they understand that some of the source of the frustration that they feel of why isn't this should just be easy. Like, I don't understand why all of these technology companies can't just make this happen. And the reality is you're exactly right. It's not the same person who built all of these tools. It's not the same person who had the idea of how to build all of them. And everybody's just trying to build it the best way. But now we have to figure out how to make it work for the firm. And the last thing I'll say, which is ties into a lot of what you're talking about, too, is we've seen for a long time the fight over what should be the hub for financial advisors. Should it be the CRM? Should it be the portfolio management system? Should it be planning? Should it be you name it, right? And we've just taken the stance and belief that the hub should be the firm itself. And the firm should have its own technology product that that is the hub and everything else is spokes because that way you can standardize how the data works in our opinion. But that's just not how most people have worked because advisors don't have engineers and they don't have technology teams and nor do they want them or nor should they have to. So Kyle, I think that's really smart because most people think of the CRM as the core component and that's where they should standardize and sure, if that's how you're going to manage your office. But when you think about all these different technologies, they have distinct purposes. A financial planning tool that produces a plan collects very little data about the accounts or the people. Hypotheticals generated are not very good data sources to fill out forms, as an example. They have different purposes and different intents. So when you talk about it, I think that's really smart to think, let's standardize on the data first. Let's have a central way to look at who we're working with, why we're working with them. And that goes back to the original part of this conversation, which is connection. You want to be connected with your customer really well, which means you want to know them, you want to know their accounts, you want to know what their needs are, what their problems are, et cetera. So yeah, I think that's a fantastic way to look at it. And that's, that's the whole idea of this show. And what we're trying to do is we just think that as technology continues to evolve as fast as it is, 
when we look at financial advisors, they're all shaking their head going, you know, I never got into this business to have to think about technology this much. And yet here I am every day trying to figure out how to connect all of this stuff better just so that I can serve those clients better. I can't provide the type of advice I want to provide when I can't get the answers to the questions I'm trying to, to do, or it takes me hours to do it. I came up in this industry working for Riskalyze, now known as Nitrogen. And I, I always, I remember something Aaron Klein used to say all the time, which is technology should fade into the background so that advisors and their relationships with clients should shine. And I just don't think that's what's actually happening today. I think technology is very much in the forefront and it's a real challenge for, for people to, to get to. So I appreciate the conversation. Rich, as we start to wrap up here a little bit, I just want to ask you, outside of Quick, outside of building a business, which is amazing, what are some of the other ways that you spend your time, maybe in a more philanthropic manner or things like that? I know I saw that Quick is partnered with the Arbor Day Foundation. Would maybe love to hear about that a little bit, or if there's anything else that you're really passionate about outside of helping solve form and data problems for financial advisors and the like. Yeah, real quickly about Arbor Day, we had been calculating for a long time how many trees we save based on how many forms are generated, therefore how many pages. We know the calculation. And then one day we said, we should just plant these trees. Forget the estimation. Let's go plant those trees and make it real. And so we do. And we actually give out awards to some of our customers for how many trees they saved. To me, that's like an outgrowth of this business I never expected. I spend a lot of time with my kids. I've got three boys they're all young, entering school or just barely into school. So they take up a ton of my time. My oldest and I are really bonding on radio controlled cars right now. Uh, hold on really quick. I'm going to show you something. Not a plug for this company, but we have this RC car still in the box waiting for him to achieve a goal. And when he achieves this goal, he gets this car, which is a super fast car. It'll be super fun for him. So yeah, we've been really bonding on that. I So one of my own stories is... Again, I grew up poor, and at age eight, I saw my friend with this really fast RC car. No way I could afford it. Back in the 80s, $300 was like $2,000 today. And so I worked for four years to save up the money. And I eventually got enough money. In fact, I started my first business at age 12 and made over $1,000 in one day. And I made enough money to buy that RC car just as I started eighth grade and built it. it. took like three weeks to build from scratch. And it was amazing. And I totally loved it. And part of me as a parent misses those days. So now I'm doing that with my kids and we're going to go off racing and have fun. Rich, I absolutely love that because most of the people listening to this as advisors are also entrepreneurs. They've started their firm. And I always love to dig into why do we do this, right? For some people, it's, hey, I want to call the shots and control things. And I want to be the boss and all of that stuff. But why do people build businesses work as hard as we do to try and to try and make these things happen. And a lot of times it's so that we can have the type of life that we dream of having. And there's something really, really cool about that as I think about the idea of connection, that you're connecting the success you've had since of age 12, all the way back to something that was a desire when you were a younger kid. And then now you're sharing that as a legacy with your kids. And I think that's a really, really beautiful and amazing thing. So I'm glad that you shared that. Oh, thank you. And we're having a ton of fun with it every day. Let's go drive our cars. <laughs> Yeah, that's so cool. I'm not that well versed. So how fast do those things go? I mean, I know that it, I know they can zip around a little bit, but that really fast one you just showed us, give us some some ideas of how cool that is. Okay, so this is what's crazy. That car costs like $75 in today's money. Oh, wow. So it's super, super yeah. cheap, turnkey, but it's hobby grade, so I can upgrade it, you know, fix it, whatever. And this one does about 25 miles per hour. 
That's oh, super man. fast for an eight-year-old. That's really I, that's fast. Insane. And it's about as fast as the car I bought for $300. I mean, you can get cars today that do over 100 miles an hour. That's totally insane. I'm not into that. But yeah, they, <laughs> sky's the limit, my friend. That is really cool. So do you guys take it to tracks or like, do you guys go out and do that? Or is it like, hey, go race it around the neighborhood and see whose car's faster, dad's or mine? Or what's that look like? Yeah, we, we, we take out some plywood and build ramps here in our yard. We go around the neighborhood at new construction sites and try to find hills that are natural jumps. We take it to parks. We have yet to find an RC park to go to. I know they exist. I just haven't looked them up. This is still fairly new. This is only about a month and a half in the running because it was a birthday gift to start with, with a much lower end car for him. And I have one of these faster cars for myself. <laughs> nah, super cool. Awesome, Rich. Well, I really appreciate you sharing. Thank you so much for joining the show today and enlightening a lot of us on some of the, the underneath of how all of this works, because I think it is incredibly insightful. I loved you sharing about how you want to see the best come out in people. And I think that's amazing. I think a lot of advisors can take from that is how can you help the best come out in your clients? And I just appreciated all the insights that you shared about communication and connecting with people. So really appreciate you being here. Well, I love being here. Thank you for having me and uh, giving me the chance to say what I think. I love it. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, to all the listeners, thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Connected. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.